All right, well, good evening again, as always, to, and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study, like we continue on each week. And tonight we're, we're going to jump in. You're going to need to end a little bit early as well, so we better just uh, jump right in here. We're back to resume this study of Lesson 12 on reprobation this week. And last week it got cut into a, a two-parter, but I'm glad it did because I understand this subject matter on reprobation, which we'll reintroduce tonight as well. For those who might be new, it, it's going to be some heavy subject matter. So it's good to have an extra week to continue to ponder these things and, and dwell on them. In fact, in some ways, tonight's lesson will be like a redux of last week's lesson. We'll take some things further, clarify some things, and uh, we'll begin with a little bit of a brief recap in case you missed it. Yeah? The handout is the same as last week, um, and I have one more if you weren't here. No worries. Yeah. Same as last week. Here. You want to pass down? Oop, there you go. One more. <laughs> Here's one more coming down. There's too many. Okay. It's coming back. Okay. Keep. All right. Well, so far, as you all know, we spent tons of time the last almost couple months studying election, which concerns God's dealing with whom the Bible calls the elect. And we found the scripture clearly teaches that God unconditionally elected some to eternal life according to his will before the foundation of the world. But before we move on, though, we want to study what the Bible says about how God deals with the unelect, that other category. And that's what the study of reprobation is all about. Election may be defined as God's decision in eternity past to set his special love on some according to his free will and save them by his grace. On the flip side, reprobation may be defined as God's decision in eternity past to pass over others, leaving them in their sinful state and punishing them accordingly per his perfect justice. Now, as we know well, people have a hard enough time swallowing what the Bible has to say about election. We've covered that for months and it's just so clear. What else can you say? But at the same time, some people, if you have trouble with election, then you're really going to choke on reprobation. And and a lot of people just have a a hard time with it. In a sense, I understand how and why. They're coming from a place of misunderstanding and often a caricature of what the Bible says or what people, you know, these crazy people called Calvinists believe. And so they think that the God of, of their Bible is some kind of a monster. I mean, how could God not choose to save everybody when he has the power to save everybody? But as we've covered, everybody has to answer that objection, right? Because not all are saved, unless you're a universalist. Well, we've studied this extensively in the past, but just to briefly reiterate, we've, we've pointed out how God is perfectly just and fair in all his dealings with the elect and the unelect. And people go astray when they, when they think that, when they think of man as being inherently good and righteous, where God determines to make men evil. He turns them evil just so that he can condemn them to hell and be glorified. But that's not true. Nobody, nobody believes that. You have to remember, God is viewing humanity from a fallen standpoint where he finds people who are already evil and corrupt and sinful and rebellious and wicked. And such people deserve God's justice. God's under no obligation to show mercy to save anybody. I mean, he can, he does, but he's under no obligation to show that mercy. Some he chooses by his mercy to save to the glory of his mercy, and he's free to show that mercy on whom he wills. Those who don't receive his mercy, but instead receive his justice, well, they're not being wronged. God is is not doing any wrong to them. They're being treated perfectly fairly, perfectly justly, and getting precisely what they deserve. So if you find yourself as we're talking about reprobation for a second week now, still struggling with some of those objections, like, you know, that's not fair, not just. At this point, I'll just say, go back and and get Lesson 11 and review it, because we really went into that at greater length. But after some teaching on reprobation last week, introducing you to the topic, we made our way over to Romans chapter 9, which really is the primary text teaching on the subject of reprobation, God passing over the unelect. And so let's just turn there again. That's that's where we're going to resume this evening. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 9. And the primary passage is verses 14 through 24. 
And our goal is actually really simple, just to go through these verses and, and study them and point out three observations on reprobation from this passage. And, and from that in itself, we learn about reprobation. The text says a good amount. And just in studying these three little points, you learn a good deal about the topic of reprobation. And we covered one and two last time. So if you have your notes from last week, we're still using the same handout. Number one, we found that God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Straight from the text, remember verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. It was Paul responding to God's choice of Jacob over Esau, and that was God's choice. He chose one and not the other. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so verses 14 through 16, God is free to give out mercy as he wills, as he desires. It's just up to him. Mercy is his to give out. That's the whole point. If you're obligated to receive grace, it would no longer be grace. It would just be what was due. It would be justice. But this is mercy. Now, verses 17 and 18, the same goes, though, for the flip side, which is hardening. He says, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, we just saw what he said to Moses, but what about Pharaoh, the other side of that? He says, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So there you have it. I mean, it just says it right there. And we talk more about that point. Again, God is under no obligation to show mercy, to save some as an act of mercy. And those he passes over, they receive just pure justice. They get exactly what they deserve, for they are sinners who rebelled against God and so forth. But that last point, though, at the same time, in verse 18, it did bring up this question as to the nature of this hardening, because that's like, that's one of those passages when you read and you're like, wait, just immediately comes with questions like, what's up with that? What, what's this hardening? Who's in control? Who's responsible for the hardening? What, is it, what does it really mean? And it, it does seem kind of like harsh, like, whoa, God hardened Pharaoh just to raise him up and, and declare his power through him. So just kind of, what's up with that? You know, can we learn more about that? And so indeed, our, our second point, we started to explore that further, that reprobation involves God hardening the wicked. We looked at several other examples of God hardening the, wick, the wicked in Scripture, and there are several other examples of this. So the fact that God hardens the heart of the wicked, it's, it's actually clear there are plenty of examples. Now, there's no verse that says that God does this to all the unelect per se, but it's clear that to some degree the two are re- related. This reprobation, the act of passing over, and God's hardening the wicked. And Pharaoh is, of course, the ultimate case study. And we looked at that last week, which really led us into a discussion of how God hardens the heart of at least some of the unelect, which, of course, effectively seals them in their doom when God hands them over to their sin one way or another and hardens them. It's a form of judgment where they're not able to believe and they're sealed in their unbelief. And so it makes us wonder, like, well, how, how does that really happen? Because people have fears like, hey, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to follow Christ. What if God just decides to harden me? And then I'm just I'm, I'm done. I'm doomed. Is that going to happen? It's not a wrong question to ask. But so we, we did a little study on how. And I point out two basic ways God hardens the hearts of the wicked. Again, review in your notes. Number one, by withholding his restraining grace. God views people who are already in sin and rebellion. They've already rejected God in unbelief. And God's act of hardening them is, is more passive in the sense that he merely hands them over to their sins. Their sinful natures, the lust of the flesh, and their sin itself does the actual work of hardening them. But in withdrawing his common grace and leaving people to live in unchecked sin, God is effectively hardening them as an act of judgment. And a, a simple example here would be government. Romans 13, Paul says how government is a minister of God for good. 
God gave the institution of government as a check on evil. And in general, that's what governments do. None perfectly, but what happens if a government is removed or itself turns evil and, and calls evil good and good evil? Well, then the people sink into a really dark place. And isn't that how God hardens a nation? Through wickedness in the leadership? And so, and that's a form of God's common grace to man, government for us. Just one example of how God can withhold and withdraw his grace to turn people over to sin and hardening. Secondly, we point out by withholding illumination in conjunction with turning people over to their sinful desires. We said examples where God withholds the light of the truth from them. Basically, God hardens people by leaving them in the darkness. The light of the truth shines, but they chose the darkness, and God just leaves them in darkness. There's a veil over their eyes. They can't see the light, and God just leaves the veil there. He doesn't remove it by his grace, which is always an act of grace when someone can see the light, so to speak. Again, God's act of hardening is, is seen as more passive, where he hardens by failing to intervene. But he's still making a choice. I mean, by not acting, he's still making a choice. And so in that regard, he's active. It's a form of judgment where he's not intervening by which they might be saved. So it's still a choice. And that's where we ended last week. And overall, we took more of a a passive view of God's hardening the hearts of sinners. God's active in the sense that by failing to intervene, he's making a choice and effectively sealing the person in their fate. But God is passive in the mechanism of that hardening. He's not making people sin or creating evil in their hearts, uh, but just letting the, the, them suffer the, the due course of their error, which will harden themselves. God doesn't need to do anything to harden them, but merely hand them over to their own flesh. The unchecked flesh is bad enough. So that's where we ended. It's, yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. This is heavy subject matter. Now, at this point, we're ready to move on. However... I got uh, some good questions throughout the week on the matter. Someone has had some extra questions on this whole hardening business, which is understandable as the subject matter is, you know, heavy. And I always figure, or I tend to figure that if one person has questions, others probably have the same question. Maybe they just don't want to ask, or even if they don't, it's edifying to, to talk about it. And so what we're going to do now actually is, is actually revisit this whole issue of God hardening the hearts of the wicked, but take it much further and provide even more clarification. You might say, hey, I've got it all figured out. Good good on you. Good for you. But imagine if you were challenged to explain, like, tell me exactly how God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, do you feel you understand that? And it, it's actually very worthy to understand. We will see next week, which we will come back next week to truly finish off the, this reprobation study, how it actually really... Uh, informs our view of reprobation and how it actually does tie into God passing over the unelect, this act of hardening. They are related. So anyway, like I said, this is more of a a redux study on what we covered last week, taking it further. But it will really pave the way for understanding reprobation a lot more next week, really shed some light on it. Now, the basic question this person had was, it concerned God's role in hardening the wicked. Like I said, we essentially took this passive view of God hardening the hearts of the wicked where God hardens them by merely handing them over to their sin and the person hardens themselves. But this person wondered about that because in the passages we looked at, chiefly Romans and Exodus, it it doesn't really seem God is passive. It, It seems he's active. In fact, Exodus just outright says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I mean, it sure seems active. So... So what's up with that again? You know, can you really say it's passive? And just because it's, it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, how does that make God's role passive? And so good question, very good question. And I figured it'd be edifying for all of us to just further explore the issue of God hardening the hearts of the wicked in Scripture. I mentioned that, you know, others, and maybe even yourself at time, you come to a passage like this and, and you see it, you see the issue there, you see like you have questions. But you almost shy away because it's such a you know big deal, maybe a big mess, a tangled knot of theology, and you're like, you know, save it for someone else. But we like to tackle even the, the harder questions and the harder concepts here, so we're, we're happy to study this. 
So let's just do now a bonus study on God hardening the hearts of the wicked and take it really to another level. Now, starting back in the Old Testament, you can, you can jump ahead and turn back to Exodus 9. We'll get there in a minute. Exodus chapter 9, we'll go back there. There are several examples of this in the Old Testament, actually, but the primary passage is Exodus chapters 4 through 14, dealing with Pharaoh, the whole episode with Pharaoh and the, the ten plagues and so forth. In this passage, we noted some examples last time. You had a string of examples scattered throughout where it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember that? I mean, it's in your notes. You have some examples, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's the active agent. There's another set where Pharaoh is the active agent. It says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we have both phrases scattered throughout these passages. Then sometimes it's just purely passive. It says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Who did it? It just doesn't say. It just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So three ways of expressing the something that's going on where his heart is being hardened. And we, we have the question, well, who's, who's doing this and how? Who's, who's truly responsible and how is this happening? That's basically the question. So you look at these all the different instances. The primary Hebrew verb used for this hardening is hazak which has a basic meaning of to make something strong or to become strong. It's used 12 times in these chapters, mostly of the Lord. Four times of Pharaoh, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Related verbs, kahed and kasah, they're also used in the same manner, where sometimes you have the Lord who's doing the hardening, and sometimes these words are used where Pharaoh is hardening himself. So when that happens... When you have these words and they're all used interchangeably, it makes it a bit harder because you know just doing a word study doesn't take you very far because you have the, the same words being used in, in the same way, once for God, once for Pharaoh. You don't actually, it doesn't really settle anything just to do a, a linguistic study. It's really more of a theological problem. But here's what we can say. Whatever the answer is as to that the mechanism of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It has to account for both perspectives, meaning it has to, be, has to account for God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Both are somehow true because Exodus says both, right? We'll take that at face value. Both have to be true. We have to somehow explain how both can be true at the same time without it being a contradiction, right? You guys get that? Where it can be true that, yeah, God did it, but Pharaoh did it. How can that both be true? That's, that's what we're getting at in this deeper study. Well, we can point out a few more connections in the text that we didn't last week, per se. The first one's in Exodus 9. Uh, well, actually, the first one's in Exodus 5, but I'll just summarize it for you. At the outset of this episode, when we're first introduced to Pharaoh, how, how do we find him? From the very first, he's not presented as a good guy. He's not a righteous man. He's not like a man of God or a believer. He's from the beginning presented as an unrepentant, wicked sinner, a pagan king who's rebellious against the God of Israel. He's a, he's a bad guy. So we don't ever get the picture that, you know, Pharaoh's a good guy and God just capriciously hardened him and just set his heart against him. That's worth pointing out. It's not like Pharaoh started off as being a good guy and God just, you know, I'm going to make you evil so I can be glorified in the Exodus. That's not the picture we get. Pharaoh was already evil. Now, we also have a passage which seems to indicate the mechanism of Pharaoh's self-hardening. It's in chapter 9. Look at verses 15 and 16 to begin. This is chapter 9. This is after the, the plague of boils. And uh, this is God speaking through Moses. And he says, For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So is God talking to Pharaoh through Moses, and he's like, look, if, if God wanted to, he could have wiped all the Egyptians out by now and just easily let the, the Jews go. But God's saying he's allowed it, the Egyptians and Pharaoh to remain, 
to show his power. We cover that. And God is magnifying his glory through this whole episode. But notice here how God is operating with Pharaoh. He's not making Pharaoh do anything. God is not coercing Pharaoh to do anything, to be evil, to rebel. God doesn't have to do that. But he is allowing it. You have, we have the verbiage here of God's will. It's not coercive, but it is permissive. And there is a difference. That's an important difference to, to note. That God's will in Pharaoh's evil is not coercive, but permissive. Which makes sense. God is not the doer of evil, nor does he make men do evil. So God's not making Pharaoh rebel and not let the people go. That's important to point out. You'll see how it comes back into play later. But God is permissive. He is allowing them to persist in their rebellion for his purposes. But it's still their rebellion. Now, look at... After this, you've got another plague. So he still doesn't listen. Okay, you've got another plague, the plague of hail, which was extremely severe, if you remember. Now look down at the end of the passage. Pharaoh at one point says, look, okay, I'm going to give in. You guys, you guys can go. Just, just pray for the hail to stop. And Moses prays, the hail stops. But you, you know what happens. This is not the last plague. And so verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased... He sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. We also point out the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine again among them. So here's a passage where we have all three usages put together verse 34 pharaoh hardened his heart verse 35 just purely passive pharaoh's heart was hardened then the next verse chapter 10 verse 1 god hardened his heart so it's a perfect example where all three are crammed together notice here though uh, this time in verse 34 it says there's a little connection added where it says that pharaoh sinned again and hardened his heart How did he sin? It doesn't say, actually. But in the context, it seems pretty clear it's the continual sin of unbelief and rebellion. I mean, that's that's his chief sin here, of unbelief and rebellion against Yahweh. But verse 34 is clear that in that verse, Pharaoh is the agent of the hardening of his own heart. And it suggests that his sin is connected to him hardening his own heart. Now, in all, though, There's not a lot more to gather. I mean, Exodus, let's face it, it wasn't written as a theology textbook trying to explain how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's not really the point. We do have some indications, though, from this narrative. We can gather, look, Pharaoh, we know this. From the beginning, Pharaoh was already an evil, wicked, rebellious sinner. God didn't make him evil or make him that way. Pharaoh chose to be that way. His rebellion is his own. And we also have indications that as he chose to continue in his rebellion and unbelief, that he hardened his own heart. And God hardened Pharaoh by permitting this to happen. He allowed them to remain and to continue in this rebellion. There's never an indication that God caused them to rebel, caused them to not believe. But we saw that passage where he allowed them, and here where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Now there's still more to say, because look, again, We still have to account for, well, what about chapter 10, verse 1? God hardened his heart. And what we still still haven't answered how are both true. But so we've gleaned a little insight from Exodus, though. Let's let's turn back now to the New Testament side of things and then carry on with some more verses we didn't look at last time in, in greater depth. We'll eventually get back to Romans, but first go to Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll get there in a little bit. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, we saw in Romans how Paul mentions the hardening of Pharaoh, as well as the hardening of the nation of Israel. There's another example of God hardening people. Romans 11 talks about God hardening the nation of Israel. In the Greek, in the New Testament, two words are used to talk about the same concept. Parao, which means to make hard like stone, and sklerune, which is used six times, 
to harden, to make stubborn. Again, you actually don't learn a whole lot from word studies. These words are used in a, a rather straightforward manner, and they're used interchangeably again. So they don't tell us too much. They don't settle anything. Let's just put it that way. Because both of these words are once again used actively and passively. Uh, I'll give you an example here uh, through in the New Testament, which talks a lot about God hardening the nation of Israel. You remember that, right? Several examples of that. In one example, God is the hardening agent. God is doing it. John 1240, or John quotes Isaiah 6 and says that God has hardened their heart. That's why they're not believing in Jesus. Quoting the Isaiah 6 prophecy, God has hardened their heart. So God is the agent. God hardened Israel. That's John 1240. You have another passage, though, where there's no active agent. Romans 11, verse 7. Speaking of the nation of Israel, it says some were chosen, but the rest were hardened. Passive. By whom? Text doesn't say. It just says the rest were hardened. That's all it says. Then you have another example where Israel is the active agent. That's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8. And you know the passage which, quoting the Old Testament, but applying it to national Israel. You know, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like, like Israel did in the wilderness. That's the whole point. They hardened their hearts in the wilderness. And now we're being told not to harden our hearts. So uh, clearly this is something we can do. We have the ability to harden our hearts. Hebrews makes a big deal of telling us, don't do it. Like, don't harden your own heart. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So we're still left with the question, you know, who is, that was Hebrews 3.8, by the way. Who is doing this? Who's responsible for this hardening? We've got the same options. Okay, it's either God or it's us or something in between. If God is actively hardening our hearts, in what sense can it really be said that we're hardening our own hearts? A lot of questions. Let's just now condense it down and give some answers, some clarification. This is more of a theological issue than just a linguistic issue. It comes down to gathering all the verses, making all your observations, and trying to synthesize them together in a way that accounts for, for all of them, right? God hardening and us hardening. Now, there's this active view where God is like actively hardening the hearts of people and making their hearts hard by an active act of his will. So problem with that view, which is not the view we took, if God is actively hardening our hearts, there's really no meaningful way we can be said to harden our own hearts. If that's the reality, you have God, for example, taking Pharaoh's heart, uh, you know, Pharaoh, he's got a heart of clay, for example, and you've got God actively putting it into an oven on purpose to bake it rock solid so that Pharaoh has no chance of responding to God's calls. Well, then Pharaoh, in that case, he really is just passive. He's purely passive, and there's no meaningful way it can really be said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I mean, God just did it to him. He had no say in the matter. He's totally passive, and he's out of the equation. But you see, that's never the picture we get in Scripture that God hardens people in an active and heavy-handed way. Yes, it says Pharaoh hard, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we have to still account for Pharaoh's self-hardening. Also, keep in mind, as we point out before, we never get this picture of God capriciously, arbitrarily hardening someone's heart. Like God says, oh, I see you're, you're a decent person. Let me, let me just harden your heart and make you evil so that I can use you in judgment to glorify myself. Never given that picture. The picture is always of what? Who, who gets hardened? It's always people who are first extremely wicked, rebellious, depraved sinners. Those who are just unchecked in their sin. That tells us something. That, that's meant to teach us something. There's a clear connection between their sin and their hardening. Their sin, which God didn't make them do. God does not do evil nor tempt man to do evil. James 1, 13. But there's a clear connection between people's sin, their own willful rebellion, and their self-hardening. In fact, that connection is made explicit in Scripture, which I guess we didn't really point out last week. So back here at Hebrews 3, that while you're here, we saw verse 8. 
an example of Israel hardening their own hearts in the wilderness. And we're being warned here not to do that, to to not harden our hearts. We're being told, just like they were told. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts like they did. Well, how do we prevent our hearts from being hardened? What's the culprit of this hardening? We'll look down at verse 12 and verse 13. He says, after he you know, gives this long Old Testament quote, and then he, he gives us a command, verse 12. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. It's actually pretty clear. What, what's the hardening agent of, what was the hardening agent of Israel's heart? It was their own evil, unbelieving heart that fell away. Their heart. God didn't give them that heart. And what, what caused an evil, unbelieving heart? The deceitfulness of sin. It got a hold, unchecked, wasn't repented of. It will just like a forest fire will burn and eventually they, they fell away in unbelief. That same connection is elsewhere. For the sake of time, you can, if you're a note taker, you can write down Acts 19, verse 19, or verse 9, rather, Acts 19, verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Two more examples which, which talk about a connection between, and let's talk about Israel, their sin and their unbelief connected to the hardening of their own hearts. In fact, we saw that connection in Exodus 9. Remember, we just read how there, there seemed to suggest a connection. And it said, and Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart. Another connection between Pharaoh's sin, Pharaoh's unbelief, and his self-hardening. And now to, to review, this was a connection we also made last week in Romans chapter 1. Keep a little bookmark in Hebrews 3, and let's, let's go back now to Romans chapter 1 and, and look at that again. Romans chapter 1. You know, in Romans 1, what comes first? The sin and unbelief of the people or their hardening? They're being turned over to God's wrath. Well, Romans 1 first talks about, I mean, how does it start off? Starting verse 18, uh, which is the main opening of, of, this, of this section here. It, talks, it starts off where God, you know, what is God doing at first? God is revealing himself. He's making himself known to the people. It's not like God chose to harden everybody on day one of his creation. Rather, he made himself known. Instead, what did the people do? As they, as you keep reading, starting verse 18 and following, just summarizing here, but as they, the people, as they suppressed the truth, as they exchanged the truth for a lie, as they turned to idolatry, then they were hardened. There's a connection, right? They suppressed the truth. They turned away. They turned to vain idols. Then they were handed over. It's put very well in verse 21. It says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And then what? And their foolish heart was darkened. What came first? Before their hearts were were darkened their sin, their rebellion, their unbelief, and it led to the darkening of their hearts. Only God didn't create them to have dark hearts. Only then, as a result, did God do what? There's a very clear flow here. And notice verse 24, we looked at this. It says, therefore, therefore, and in consequence, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And we've talked about how three times that's that's refrain is mentioned, verse 24, 26, 28. God gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. What is God's role in this passage with these with the wicked? It's it's passive. He's handing them over. He's not doing anything to them. He's not making them sin. He's not creating fresh darkness in their hearts. He's not placing them in the darkness. God let the light shine, but they rejected the darkness. They put themselves in the darkness, and God merely leaves them in the dark. 
and hands them over to live in the dark, and they will reap what they sow in the dark. Notice a key word in Romans 1 is the word wrath. Verse 18, how he starts it off. There's, there's a big contrast in the whole book of Romans between grace and wrath and mercy and wrath. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is not arbitrary. His wrath is not just willy-nilly. It's always directed that those who are ungodly and unrighteousness and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God, God is not just you know, blindly shooting his wrath and it, just, it can hit anyone randomly and, and now you're an object of wrath. It's always those who deserve wrath. And how is God's wrath expressed as the chapter continues in the form of handing people over to their sin? God's wrath is revealed from heaven by this handing over. That's his wrath on this side of eternity, wouldn't you say? I mean, the act of handing them over to their sin, which seals them in judgment, that is the expression of his wrath on this side of eternity. And then they'll get the full measure of his wrath on the other side. And that's, I think, the connection Romans 1 is, is clearly making. This will, side note, this will come back next week when back in Romans 9, we talk about these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. All this will come back into play then, but there, that key word pops up again and again in Romans, and there's a connection, but we'll have to save that for next week. But don't forget, though, the connection of wrath. It will come up again. But we put all this together, though, and we're led to this passive view of God hardening the hearts of sinners. God does not find men good or righteous and arbitrarily decide to harden them so that he can be glorified in their judgment. God does not actively harden people at all. And honestly, he doesn't need to. He really doesn't need to. Rather, the, What's that? They're already there. Right? Yeah, that's the whole point. So the, the handover should be, we're actually handed over to, to righteousness. Well, we're, we're plucked out. You know, we're redirected. Exactly. We're regenerated. We're turned around. That's, that's the whole point. And it's a radical thing. Because Romans 1, it's really talking about everybody. All humanity was in this boat, boat as there are none righteous apart from God's grace. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. But the picture we get is that God finds people already in sin, rebellion, unbelief, Despite having the light shine on them, they've chosen the darkness. That's all humanity. And God, in turn, hands them over, turns them over to their sin, leaves them in the darkness. They will continue in sin, which will further harden their hearts, leading them to further not believe the gospel, which in effect seals their judgment. And that is God's judgment on this side of eternity. And it applies to all unbelievers, actually, like Lloyd was talking about, where that's, that's the natural state of fallen man. We're all like this. And some people's hardening is expressed more than others. And yet God still, to the glory of his mercy, has the power to, to pluck someone out and to, to radically change them. But that, that's what it takes because we already are given over to sin, this whole world. But I, I, at least, I believe at least that this view best explains how it can be said that God hardens people and people harden themselves at the same time. Because it perfectly explains both. It's really just another reflection of the duality in Scripture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in all things. It's just, it's just another reflection of that. God's sovereign, yet man is responsible at the same time. And you guys know that's all throughout Scripture. And so, look, God is active in hardening people in the sense that by not intervening, he's making a choice. right? So he's still active by not intervening. He's still making some choice. So he's still sovereign. He's sovereign over the elect and the unelect. But he's passive in the mechanism of the hardening, where all he needs to do to seal a person in judgment is simply not intervene and give them what they deserve. Just hand them over to their own sinful desires and show them justice, which he's very fair to do. That's what we all deserve. Sin and unbelief harden hearts. Uh, that's a truth I think we all can affirm with experience from ourselves or others we know uh it, it seems to be pretty clear tim question or comment there yeah, um, 
Now, Judas was, uh, his heart was predestined to betray. So, so Tim mentioned Judas's heart predestined to betray. Save that for next week. Next week, when we revisit reprobation, we're talking about reprobation and then the other concept that some call double predestination. And we'll talk about Judas. So you just come back next week. We have enough on our plate. We have enough on our plate this, this evening, right? Now, this is heavy enough, so we'll save that. But notice, just by way of preview, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul condemning all humanity. He says, because of your stubbornness, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And so it always goes. People get what they deserve according to their deeds, their unrepentant, stubborn heart. That's man's responsibility, which, hey, in some way it fits with God's sovereignty. And that's, that's one of the great mysteries of Scripture, which we can talk about a lot. And, and there's something to glean there, but we'll, we'll leave that there for now. Hopefully this helps clarify the nature of how God hardens the heart of the wicked. It's an important issue, but it can be tricky. And so I, I think it was worth an extra week of study here. And like I said, coming back next time, we will find how this deeper understanding of how God hardens the heart of the wicked, how it very much relates to reprobation and someone like Judas, for example. Everything we learned today, we'll, we'll come back next week and it'll really help us nail down and, and finish our discussion on reprobation, which is God's act and decree in the past of just passing over the unelect, not giving them salvation. We've got, we got to say more about that. We'll do that next time. Before we're quite done, though, I think after a lesson like this, we have to, just given the nature, we have to include some note of application. we got to be careful. It's one thing to study that how, how our hearts are hardened intellectually. We have to do a little bit more than that because, you know, you can go back to Hebrews 3 now. We'll finish here. I mean, we... We don't want to just casually read over such a strong warning where we were told not to harden our own hearts. And we just got to take that at face value. That's a, that's a command for us to heed. Yeah, God in his sovereignty, he's designed to hand some people over to their sins, hardening them in unbelief. But honestly, that's not our concern. We don't know God's sovereign decree. We don't know God's will of who's elect, who's unelect. That's, that's not the point. We are to concern ourselves with our responsibility. That That's... That's our bread and butter. And in that regard, just do what the Bible says to do. And here in Hebrews 3, we're told very starkly, do not harden your own heart. And I think we need to leave with some appreciation of this warning. This is our responsibility in the matter. God's sovereign, we believe that more than any, but here's our responsibility. We need to take it seriously. So notice again this, this call in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as, as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again, back in verse 8, where we see applied to us this command, do not harden your hearts. Well, I think from this, just briefly here, First, I want to point out, you can take some comfort knowing, knowing that we've learned God will not arbitrarily harden your heart. And I've heard, I've heard this from some people. They express some fear like, you know, hey, I'm a believer. I'm following Christ. But, you know, what if God just decides to harden me? What if he just chooses to, uh, maybe I'm not elect and he just chooses to hand me over and one day I just fall away. There's nothing I can do about it. If he wants to do it, then no one can stop his will, right? So... How do I know that won't happen? And not knowing a, a deeper understanding of these truths, they have no answer, and they, therefore they have no assurance, and that's not how we are meant to live. That's a terrible way to live, just wondering, will I wake up and God has handed me over, and now I'm lost? And, uh, and no, <laughs> no, he won't. That, that's not how God operates. It's not how God works. We've learned he's not capricious in his hardening or arbitrary. It's always, always the same thing. It is the unrepentant sinner living in wickedness and depravity who is refusing to repent. Who knows the truth? God's truth was evident to them. Yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They turn away. 
And there's a special measure of hardening for those, I think, even in the Christian faith who there's warning passages in Hebrews, right? That talk about these people who came close to the knowledge of God and turned away, impossible to restore them to repentance. But look, if you're following Christ, that's not you. And you need not fear or worry. Look, if you don't want God to harden you and hand you over, well, don't harden yourself. Isn't that the duality we've learned? Like, just don't, just repent. You know, if you fall into sin, and we all do, just repent. Seek Christ. Run the race your entire life, and you'll be fine. And you're God's child if you follow Christ. He's not going to just hand you over. He, he loves you. He has chosen to set his love on you. And you should not live in fear unless you're living in sin. If you are living in unrepentant sin, living a life of depravity with, with no regard for, for God and his word, then you should live in fear. That's the whole point. That's, that's what you're meant to do. But if you're seeking the Lord humbly with repentance, yeah, we all stumble. But be assured. Now I want to focus on this command, verse 12. It says, take care. That verb, take care, it means beware. And if you were here a couple Sundays ago, or was the last Sunday, where Philippians, uh, yeah, it's two Sundays ago, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Remember, he, he said, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. Same word he used for beware three times. It, it means, well, like we learned, watch out. Take heed. Watch out for what? Well, watch out that there's not in you an evil, unbelieving heart that obviously will fall away from the living God. Instead, verse 14, he says, After, you have to hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. Meaning you, you've got to just stay in the faith. You've got to keep believing. You've got to keep running this race until the end. You've got to hold fast and not fall away. And there's there's effort required you've got to watch out where does an evil unbelieving heart come from well like we already saw in verse 13 this hardening comes from the deceitfulness of sin sin does that that's one of the byproducts of sin left unchecked it will harden like leaven just a little bit at first but it left unchecked it leavens the whole lump and and turns the whole thing over I think we've all experienced that, like I said, maybe in your own life or you've seen someone. Look at King David in the Old Testament. Believers in a measure can, their hearts even, even regenerated, can, can fall into a pattern of sin where they're, they're uh, you know, disregarding the light. Although you can't lose your salvation, still something to beware. King David, remember he fell into adultery and after that fall, he didn't repent. He just stayed down. And, and he went to a darker and darker place, leading him to you know, participate in killing Uriah. And some people like that who are never saved and they, they just fall away. And they never repent and they fall away. If you want to learn more, I actually preached a whole sermon on this verse. When I first came to the church, called the deceitfulness of sin. And uh, you must beware, sin is deceitful like with Adam and Eve. It, it lies to you, telling you this is good, this is desirable to make one wise. This is pleasing to the eyes. You want this. And sin entices. And you have to fight against the deceitfulness of sin. How do you fight against the deceitfulness of sin? Well, walk by the Spirit. Be filled with the truth. But let me just point out in this passage, notice the corporate element. What does it say in verse 13? Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We fight with the truth. This is a truth war. Sin survives off of deception and lies. That's how it thrives. And you can take out all the oxygen by infusing the truth and just, you know, snuff the flame of deception. We need the truth, reminders of the truth, waging war with the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's how we fight. At the same time, though, there are times we're weak and we might need others to help fight with us or even for us. And that's, that's the corporate element I want you to see here. Encourage one another. Fight with, fight for one another. That's the function of the church. This is why, one of the reasons why we gather, that you're not meant to be alone, just do your own thing. This is why, even though if you don't realize it, this is one of the benefits you receive coming here on Wednesday nights. This is not a function of encouraging one another as we gather against the deceitfulness of sin and so forth.
How often should you do this? Not just once a week or twice. It says daily, actually. Every day we need this. This is a, a lifelong battle and this is a daily battle. And we need daily encouragement and rebuke and correction. You get this from your own time in the Word, which you should have daily, and from our corporate time together, even more so as well, encouraging one another. And so, uh, as an application here, to, to take this seriously, take heed, beware, and yet engage in this mutual encouragement where you're getting involved. You're not just coming and leaving, but you're encouraging one another in the faith, reminding truth, speaking truth, praying, keeping accountable, even at times rebuking, correcting, instructing. This is something we're all to do. I know it's just reminders for you, but that's the whole point. That's what he's doing here. It's just, just a reminder that we need. <coughs> God's grace is sufficient. You don't need to live in fear, but trust him. Go to him. He'll keep you close. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So just keep that one in your back pocket. Do that. And rest assured in his arms that you need not live in fear. Well, that will suffice for tonight. More to say, but that will be next week. Uh, just on time here. So I will pray as always. And we'll be done. All right, let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you very much for this time in your word. Your word has answers, and it is clear, but it rewards those who seek it. And who seek it out. Like in Proverbs, wisdom cries out in the streets, who will turn aside to her and, and search for her, her treasures? The one who seeks after you, Lord, and seeks wisdom and knowledge will find if they approach humbly to your word. And we pray that's always us, that we just we, we bow before you and, and seek your truth in the word. Keep us illumined that we would not be deceived. We trust your grace, though, and we know you are for us. You're not against us. That's by your own design, by your own mercy, and we, we thank you for that. But at the same time, may we take seriously this call to, to not harden our own hearts, to not be deceived by sin, that we wouldn't grow into an unbelieving evil heart, that we wouldn't fall away. This is the, the race we need to run. So encourage us that we might encourage one another each day until Christ returns. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.